I refused all. I refuse it. You brought him back. I will believe in it. I will trust it. There are only three answers to a prayer. Yes. Not yet. And I have something else in mind for you. Man's great challenge is trusting not yet or something else and avoiding the foolish notion of hope. Wishing to nothing that your unanswered prayer is granted. Hope is a surrender of authority to your fate and trusting it to the whims of the wind. My family does not hope. We fight for what we believe until we have it. And we are destroyed by the pursuit. Happy Heresies and welcome to the Desert of the Real. Per the clip you just heard from the show 1923, you arrive here because you're done with hope. Where hope dies, imagination must live. And as a Cheshire cat said, imagination is the only weapon in the war against reality. In the jar brought by Pandora in the Greek myth, which held all the banes of humanity and was part of Zeus's punishment for acquiring fire from Prometheus, one curse was left at the bottom after it was opened. That was hope. Hope is a curse. That is always hope. Only because it's the one thing that no one has figured out how to kill yet. So we're done hoping for religious saviors, hoping that politicians will keep their promises, and hoping for an organic better future. We lean on going inward, and we lean on our imagination. We manifest our creativity, innovation, and inspiration to break down normative realities and bring about apocalypses of the mind. As Clark Emery said, the awakening of an individual is a cosmic event. And as I say, the awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. Such a disappointment. We can make anything we fancy in this arena of infinite promise. And this is what we come up with? Weapons? War? Surely we have more imagination than that. We're done with hope. We're done with saviors, politicians, and the world fixing itself. We're writing our own gospel and living our own myth here at Aeon Bite, in this age of Hermes, Philip K. Dick world, and Gnostic times. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. So welcome, you of the broken places, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars, you high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. I am still Miguel Connor, your pompadus of Gnosis. I always honor your inner Christ and indwelling palace Athena. As Franz Kafka wrote, Beyond a certain point, there is no return, 
this point has to be reached. And as the Gospel of Thomas says, If you bring forth what is within you, what you bring forth will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. What is the truth? We place faith in ourselves. We see the world the way it really is, and hope that one day all mankind might see the same. What is the world, then? An illusion. One which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. That laws arise not from divinity but reason. I understand now that our creed does not command us to be free. It commands us to be wise. I am so excited to provide thee with a double header. First, we have the honor of hosting at the virtual Alexandria, Sarah Janes. She will discuss her new work, Initiation into the Dream Mysteries. Get ready for the mythological, mystical, and therapeutical gifts of dreaming. Then we'll pivot to Brian George, who will talk about his book, Mass of Origin, also a fantastic and useful work dealing with the personas we wear in our lives and how they can be avenues to higher realizations. By Odin's Dingleberries, you'll find new vistas to access your imagination, the tools to go inward and stop hoping against all hope for things to improve. It's said that the worst thing to come out of Pandora's box were not the sorrows and the plagues. It was hope itself. Hope's a gamble. Hope lacks certainty. And this city knows all too well what hopelessness and pain can do. It drives it mad. Sarah and Brian also provide insights into an issue that we must confront. At the beginning, I said the awakening of an individual is a cosmic event and rebellion. Yet that's not totally correct, because, as our show will stress, we've made a terrible mistake. There is no individual. The Archons were cunning in the 20th century when they manufactured the idea of the individual versus the collective, the needs of the one versus the needs of the many. I don't want to ever fall into the Borg hell of collectivism, mind you. But the notion of the individual is also a trap. There is no individual, and clinging to that notion is as pernicious as the collective or hope itself. I know who I am! I'm a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude! The truth, which the Gnostics and Hermeticists realized thousands of years ago, is that as above, so below. We are all entire universes within, the realm of Hermes playing around with cosmic energies. We are each a galaxy of complexes, shadow material, fragmented ego, and divinity, and a lot of Archon programming, the counterfeit spirit of the secret book of John. Our trauma, those unhealed inner wounds that Gabor Mate writes about in The Myth of Normal, and the missives of our ancestors are always affecting us. I'm afraid what you're describing is schizophrenia. No, no, it, it, it's not schizophrenia. It's just a voice in my head. 
Studies have shown that we unconsciously make a decision to buy something before we consciously think about it. As Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. We can never see past the choices we don't understand. There's always a choice. There has to be. If it's all fate, then we're just going through the motions and none of it means a damn thing. And as a society, we will not evolve until we accept this. Simple as that. Therefore, in dreams and our daily mass, we can find this truth, which is good news. Each of us is a constellation of thought forms or mini egregores, and once understood and integrated into our ego, it allows true purpose to rise and fate to collapse. Our ego knows then what it needs to do to traverse this terra damnata, this realm where Yaldibaldi hid our divine spark, which is a part of us that is Sophia herself. I remember I am energy, not memory, not self. My name, my personality, my choices all came after me. I was before them and I will be after and everything else is pictures picked up along the way. Fleeting little dreamlets printed on the tissue of my dying brain. I know it's not easy to hear, as in the West, we're programmed to promote the supremacy of the individual. But as you can see, it's not working out. Wars, mental disease, addiction, and existential despair are rising because the model is as deficient as clinging to hope. The odds of our societal leader solving this problem is as likely as a giraffe hearing its fart. When the truth offends, we, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it. It is even there, but it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. Let's address the renowned surgery done on Vicky in the late 1970s. The woman was basically crippled by terrible seizures. She couldn't even take care of her daughter. An innovative surgery was performed on Vicky, slicing through her corpus callosum, the bundle of neuronal fibers connecting the two sides of her brain. This drastic procedure, called a corpus callosotomy, disconnected the two sides of the neocortex, the home of language, conscious thought, and movement control. Vicky's seizures vanished, but splitting her brain caused the realm of Hermes to invade her consciousness. When she would reach out to pick out a dress from her closet with her right hand, her left hand would shoot out and pick something else. When she tried to choose something at the grocery store, her body would choose something else. Simply put, by altering her brain, the individual that Vicky thought she was was taken over by complexes, shadow material, and the rest of the galaxy in the unconscious, all with its own agenda. Many Vickys came out. I am constrained to point out that since minds are evidently being influenced, we cannot know at this moment whether our own memories are completely accurate and true. 
Thus, I urge you to explore your realm of Hermes and find out what's going on. Our civilization depends on it. And we end with a clip from Adam Curtis's fantastic documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head. Curtis discusses the conclusion of neuroscientist Michael Gazzaniga, who agrees that the individual is a fiction, and liberation comes from going into the legion that each one of us is. Then you'll be even more ready for our interview with Sarah and Brian. Gazzaniga argued that really there were multiple selves inside the human brain, each one taking control at different moments. Normally that is hidden, because the one self that is conscious constantly makes up stories to explain what all the other selves are doing. But when the connection between the two parts of the brain is cut, it can't do that. And the other parts emerge. Zanega argued that really all human beings live in a made-up dream world of stories, which give them the illusion that they are in control. to quit viewing man as a single psychological entity that in fact his psychological self is a multiple self that he has a variety of mental systems uh, existing in his brain they have emotions they have memories they have uh, incentives they have destinies and they're able to control the motor apparatus by which i mean they're able to make movements they're able to actually precipitate behaviors on the part of, of of someone and once those actions are completed here comes this verbal system in to give an explanation and to, and to propose a theory to itself to explain why these actions were carried out. Complexity theory said that human beings were just components in vast, complex systems. Systems that they would never be able to understand. Which meant that what they thought and what they felt was irrelevant to the system. Our psychology, and now neuroscience, said that much of what went on inside people's brains was beyond their control. Which meant that the conscious bit inside the brain, the part that applies meaning to the world, was actually irrelevant. Bit by bit, the idea of the world as something that human beings could understand and change was disappearing. Human consciousness was being sidelined. Welcome, everybody, you heretics and you dreamers, uh, one and the same, as I often argue here. We have the pleasure of being joined by Sarah Janes to discuss her book, Initiation into the Dream Mysteries, Drinking from the Pool of Nemocene. Sarah, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, Miguel. Thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours, and with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Just uh, have awakened from a series of dreams myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the puns and metaphors are endless, especially on this topic, misunderstood topic. So, Sarah, why don't you please tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in dreaming? 
I would say I've always been interested in dreaming. It's kind of been my main thing since I was a kid. Um, I can't really remember a time when I didn't have meaningful, interesting dreams, especially as a child. My dreams were kind of amazing to me. I, I had access to this wonderland, which I really loved and I really appreciated. And I was into um, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I kind of, because of my own dreaming experience, I was always drawn to any films, any TV, any music, anything that was about dreams. So I kind of created this feedback system, I think, of being really into dreams, reading and finding everything out I could about dreams and being into the dream aesthetic. And that kind of, I think that helped strengthen my dreaming practice. And uh, yeah, as you write, this book is itself an initiation. As I mentioned before, uh, I enjoyed your book, but you have links to this wonderful guided meditation, which is worth the price of admission. Uh, as somebody who's done narration for meditation and for people, that's a lot of hard work, but you get all these wonderful guided meditations and instructions. So beyond the great book, uh, you get a wonderful bonus. Uh, how did, and as you mentioned, as a child, you were a lucid dreamer. So you already had uh, a predisposition for this. Uh, anything else about the book and how it came about? Um, well, I was really inspired by Rudolf Steiner in his... Um, knowledge of the higher worlds book that kind of acts as initiation I loved that that concept and so my book is designed to act as a kind of self-initiatory so that you initiate yourself through your own dreams because it gives you the material and information about various different um, dream cultures of antiquity and I have particular emphasis on those of the western esoteric tradition so I sort of track um, potential potential dream rituals from the stone age because i think a lot of our dream rituals came out of necromancy and this idea that the dreams offered a portal to the underworld where the dead lived and that um they would also have helped to confirm and validate ideas of an afterlife because dreams obviously you often have dreams where you you um meet deceased loved ones and it's a big sort of noticeable aspect of dreaming that makes it feel special and magical so I think this would have also been the case for our ancestors and I think unlike an our sort of materialist reductionist worldview generally speaking it would have been enough to confirm that there was um, some afterlife and some place where human beings perpetuated yeah agreed uh, I think uh uh, obviously, you are the co-host of uh, Anthony's uh, Consciousness Hour, so you two are always battling the materialistic scientism uh, worldview that reduces everything and cuts us off from the wonder of being whole human beings. Uh, and it it seems obvious that dreams is so important, at the very least, for therapy. Uh, do you get frustrated that humans have just made something that we spend you know, eight hours a day into nothing. I, nothing really. <laughs> I actually think probably dreaming has changed over the last few thousand years. I think ancient people, perhaps because of their perception of reality as being like a continuum of consciousness, because there was less identification with the ego, with um, the self, I think dreaming probably was a different experience for them because of their different perspective and their different world universal view. Um, and in that case, 
I can see that dreams would have been treated with this great reverence because, because precisely because they offered something beyond the human experience. They were portals to divine and underworld realms. And if, you know, even if in your modern day life you consider um, dreaming as being an opportunity to travel into other realms, then you you consider it to be more important and you're more likely to have lucid dreams because setting intentions about what you want to dream about can be really powerful. Yeah, very true. And uh, at the very least, as Freud and Jung taught us from a therapeutic psychological level, dreams are a great treasure trove to find psychic healing, emotional healing, information about what's really bugging us or where our trauma comes up. So it's very useful. And you also write in your book that uh, even when we dream, aren't there certain genes that that are activated that don't happen when we're awake? So even from a bodily point of view, it's important? Well, sleeping and deep, deep sleep are like completely vital for human health and well-being. And I actually think because of our diminishing sleep quality as modern human beings, because so many people do have um, negative sleep habits, they don't sleep enough, they don't have the decent quality of sleep that you need. Um, you aren't you aren't able to access those kind of self-healing patterns so yeah there are certain genes that are switched on during sleep that are not switched on during wakefulness and these are implicated in the the sort of natural cycles of homeostasis that we go through every night to detoxify and renew cells and um things like integrating memories as well i mean one um both cannabis and um, antidepressants tend to suppress REM sleep, which is why quite often people will find themselves stuck in a rut if they stay on those things for a long time or they become habitual. It doesn't affect everyone differently. You know, it affects everyone differently because everyone has a sort of unique fingerprint of the way that their brain works and the neurotransmitters that they they have. So it's definitely something that I think is really worth deeply investing in getting good quality sleep and dreams and dreams are just as important as sleep I think you know there's been this idea for a while um that dreams are kind of meaningless they're just kind of running through the rubbish that's happened during the day and I don't think that's I couldn't don't think that could be any further from the truth I just think that a lot of people don't have meaningful dreams and therefore they don't recognize how powerful they can be because if you have a you know, the ancient conception of what I would call lucid dreams or really positive dreams were divine dreams. And I love to think of dreams as being divine dreams because some dreams feel like you're having this transcendental, divine, ecstatic experience. And I think in that sense, they parallel the psychedelic experience, um, you know, very well, because in a um, immaterial way, you can experience this healing effect of... Um, I don't know, coming to terms with perhaps previous traumas, releasing traumas, these kinds of things can be done in the imaginal realm in a way that they can't be done quite often in material reality. Dreams often, often um, offer an opportunity for closure as well. You know, if you have a relationship that you don't feel like you've had the opportunity for closure, whether that person's alive or dead, in a dream, you can have a interaction with them where you feel satisfied with the closure that you've received. And that will serve you just as well as having... Um, you know, done that in real life. Yeah, well said. I mean, the, the language of the soul of the gods, it's a myth, symbols, so much more, but dreams is an integral one. And yeah, closure is important. A couple of weeks ago, I had a dream of my mother-in-law and she was walking off into the sunset and she turned around and said, you know, everything's going to be okay. And 
there was this song by Aretha Franklin. It was her best song ever. You know, think of when a man loves a woman. And all. It was, this was better, but it was from another realm. And I was shaking. But of course, when I woke up, I, I couldn't remember the song, except it was the most powerful song that Aretha Franklin, some god gave it to her in the other world and said, sing it. So, uh, yeah, I can relate. It's uh, once, you, uh, once you start listening to the unconscious, things get better, don't they, Sarah? I think that is sort of what we're missing, isn't it, in our reductionist worldview, is there's an element whereby, um, you know, we're so materialistic quite often in our worldview these days that we can't access that sort of suspension of disbelief that's required for that Gnostic experience. Um, and dreams offer that opportunity because you're in an altered state. It's the same as, I think it's very similar actually with the way that things like magic mushrooms are used for marriage therapy. And, um, you know, you can have relationship counseling and you can be on um, magic mushrooms. And because you're in this altered state, because you're feeling like open to the possibilities and the feelings of everyone else and you feel much more empathetic, um, when people have done things that hurt you, it's so much easier to forgive them in that altered state. And I think the same is true of, um, you know, quite often we, we are angry with ourselves as well. And these things come up in dreams all the time. And it gives you an opportunity to have and to act out and experience your own psychodrama, really. Yeah, very true. Ben. I had an experience like that. Yeah. Um, uh, John Lennon. Remember my John Lennon dream that I've talked about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For years, I resented John Lennon because I thought his, he was extremely left wing and like wanted to destroy, you know, America and free societies with his round glasses and all that. And one night I had this dream that I was just sitting there and I used to play guitar when I was in my teens, I was in bands and stuff. And like John Lennon uh, showed up and he, and we sat and played guitars together. And he explained to me in this dream that, you know, I had really didn't understand them and so forth. And I listened. And it, when I woke up, my attitude had completely changed about him. I understood him. That, you know, and it turned out that's really the way he was. I did some reading and so forth. And yeah, yeah, he was, you know, more of a, you know, like a out of the box kind of guy, not not a revolutionary trying to take it all down guy. So I'll never forget that. It changed my opinion completely. Yeah, I think to in, teach you. I think in dreams, we are kind of building our soul, our personality in the dreamscapes. So because I've been lucid since I was a kid, I can remember those first kind of structures that appeared in dreams. And um, one of the people we've interviewed on the Anthony Peake Consciousness Hour is Rebecca Sharrock, who's got highly superior autobiographical memory, which means she remembers everything that's ever happened in her life, basically. And oh. it's a really interesting um, condition. There's only about 80 people that I think have been... Um, um, assessed. I'm sure there are other people that have it, but it's quite a rare, it's a rare situation. And it often combines with autism and synesthesia as well, which yeah. is fascinating because it is, it's like you have this full brain ability to um, analyze information and to draw information from your entire lifetime. And I mean, it's an incredible, an incredible power. But anyway, when I found out we were interviewing her because she has this memory capability that is above and beyond ordinary people, I said to Anthony, oh, I can't wait to ask her about her dreams because it must mean that every single one of her dreams is lucid um, because being lucid is remembering yourself in a dream. So I asked her and she did say that all of her dreams were lucid. And she and um, one of the things I really wanted to ask her about was when I was a toddler, I remember having dreams that were just all white and she had the same experiences. And I remember 
uh, from being super young, having these all white dreams, then this all white space turned into kind of like an all white room. And then certain childhood toys were placed in it as well. And then over the years, as I've kind of developed and experienced and seen more things as a as a child and as an adult, um, that landscape has become really sort of a rich tapestry of all my experiences and all my ideas, thoughts and feelings. Very interesting. interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And your book, Sarah, it uh, it deals with the history of dreams from mystical to scientific to historical and all that. But And at the end of this chapter, can you tell the audience you add a little bit extra to each chapter, this sort of, uh, I, I like to call it a recalling. <laughs> yeah, so um, I... I'm really into fiction myself. I spoke mm -hmm. to someone recently and they said to me, they don't read nonfiction anymore because they don't want to read anything they don't learn anything from. And I would say that I've learned more from fiction than I've learned from nonfiction, I would say in my life, because I've always been really into it. And I think if you read a really well-researched piece of fiction that's really beautiful, um, I think you can get just as much out of it as a nonfiction book. And there's something different that happens when you read fiction as well you're able to empathize and be emotional and engage more deeply with the experiences the sight sounds the sensory world of the protagonist in the story so basically each chapter explores a different period of history a different culture beginning in ancient anatolia and so for each chapter i did my own dream incubation practices to to dream that I was in this particular culture and what I was experiencing and the dreams that I got out of those I woke I, I sort of wove them into short, very very short narrative sections so that the reader gets a kind of contextualized experience of that culture in a sort of through a kind of dreamy filter as well so because it's dreamed material that I've created and turned into a story my hope is that it's very symbolic it's very visual it's very language orientated as well mm -hmm. my hope is that those things especially combined with the guided hypnagogic meditations will help to imprint those symbols those kind of visuals onto your unconscious mind and help them come up when you dream with the book so my plan is you read the story bit just before you go to sleep and some of those ideas and visuals get into your dreams. And because they are in your dreams and you recognize them as new novel things, hopefully that will alert yourself, you know, you to the fact that you're dreaming and you can wake up in your dream as well. I'm certainly going to try it. I do a lot of dream therapy and I've been journaling for years. So I'm, uh, my ego is ready to be tricked. You know what I mean? Tweaked because, of course, my ego is always resisting these things because there's only the material world to the ego. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, that works with audio, too. Um, if you play something to yourself and you fall asleep to it, sometimes your mind will latch into it and you'll find yourself in in whatever's going going on with the audio mm. that happened to me with an art bell show one night and i visited art bell and that was a huge thing and i was sitting around the kitchen table with him but he and i heard him talking what what was going on in the show but it, it was in the dream that's a really interesting point actually because apparently uh, i'm really really sensitive to sound in waking life and in sleeping as well and apparently uh, regular lucid dreamers are more sensitive to sound during sleep and there's some research that i read recently they were saying that um people who are regular lucid dreamers are often more anxious people um i think there is something about being sort of pr um prepared for any eventuality where you're you're very aware of your space and anything happening and actually it's quite interesting in terms of my life because my family are all really stressy and really um uh you, you, they never kind of 
don't know what you're doing. And I remember growing up, I lived in this tiny little house and I always felt like a sort of spider on a web because you couldn't move without someone in my family being like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I, that's been imprinted on me. So I think that's probably something to do is that I'm in this, not a state of alert because I deeply relax in dreams. I think I've just got used to it over the years, but um, I'm very sensitive to the outside environment as well. And I think there's a, there's definitely a, um, evolutionary benefit to that as well I mean some people think the dreams are there to um, help us prepare for future events and to um, uh, you know kind of experience imaginal threats I don't really have a lot of nightmares but some of the evolutionary theory about dreams is that it's preparation for threats Um, and for example something like if I'm interested in doing these experiments with a a researcher who works with a sense of smell Um, and say something, for example, if you smell smoke in the dream, most people will wake up, but some people sleep very deeply. They'll sleep through it. And in which case they wouldn't, um, you know, survive a fire potentially. So most human beings would wake up with the smell of smoke in their dream and they may incorporate it into dream material. So they see a fire or they see smoke or there's some other kind of threat that just alerts them to the fact that they should wake up. But I want to do that with other things as well. So the experiment I'm working on with my friend who researches smell is we're going to try things like um, when someone's asleep, um, have the smell of a perfume of an ex-lover that they really liked and then see if that person <laughs> appears in their dream. Because if you think about it, the sort of olfactory regions of the brain are so connected with the memory faculties that actually I think dreams could be, a um, smell could be a, a bit of a secret um, hack for dreaming. Wow. Very cool. And yeah, in in your book, uh, Sarah, you talk, you go back to when people started dreaming, perhaps you can share, but then I was thinking that might be asking, well, when did humans start dreaming or recording dreamings might be sort of a red herring, because as you said, to the ancients, dreaming was connected to portals, to death, to so much. And the ancients probably had a more holistic view the line between waking and dreaming was a lot more blurred they saw the different worlds all at once so yeah it's kind of hard to say when did they start dreaming because they were always dreaming yeah i i suspect you know i think animals dream i think all human type creatures have dreamed at some point and i but i think that dreaming meaningful dreaming for me most likely inspired like the earliest spiritual ideas and religious beliefs because more than any other state you know alongside psychedelics i just think that this world view that everyone is connected and everything is connected and we're part of the fabric of the cosmos mm-hmm. changes your perspective on your sort of day-to-day experience in ways that we can't possibly fathom anymore like i'm really interested in how material culture influences our perception of reality and consciousness and one of the things i've been researching is the history and the development of the mirror and how you know people started to make small obsidian mirrors as early ago and probably earlier than um, ancient Anatolia. I think the earliest ones found are near, were found near Chatelhoyek in um, Anatolia and they're sort of polished obsidian surfaces. Um, and these were elite, elite grave goods for like earliest cultures. And now you think how familiar we are with our appearance, but for an ancient person without access to mirrors, without access to cameras or films, actually 
you perceive the world completely differently when you're just mobile within it without constantly watching yourself or seeing yourself. And you think about, you know, those um, Amazonian tribes or those um, uh, um, First Nations people who, if they had photos taken of them by early anthropologists, would be horrified and think they're having their their soul stolen. I think that hints at perceptions of self and um, separation from the rest of the world that if you think you're part of a fluid cosmos then all of your perceptions are going to be different no it makes sense and yeah i'm sure animals dream i'm sure vance can agree when our dogs oh, are yeah. asleep and they're <laughs> and like yeah the what, are, you dreaming? <laughs> are you dreaming of a giant cat chasing you <laughs> or something yeah and uh when um on this show, obviously, we deal a lot of, of uh, with uh, negative uh, spirits and archons. You know those creatures that always interrupt Anthony's interviews and make sure that he has, <laughs> he has tech difficulties right when it's time to record a show. But in your book, you talk about Lilith and, of course, the Lilu of Sumerian times and all that. And of course, Lilith is intimately tied with dreams. Uh, do you see dreams as? being able to attract these negative entities are they a portal they can get through or what's your view on this um hmm, it's it's tricky to say that i haven't had experiences of sleep paralysis myself or not negative Mm. sleep paralysis anyway i've been i've been in the paralyzed state but i've never had a kind of demonic entity type feeling um it's interesting to look back into ancient dream interpretation with regards to this, because uh, in the ancient Near East and in ancient Egypt and to a lesser extent, Greece, but it was still um, prevalent in ideas like the um, Oniroi and things like this, is this idea that a dream itself is a personified spirit force that can come down and oppress you. So in the ancient Near East, there's this sort of certain class of spirits and they can be good or bad, but they they are dreams that come upon you. So Lilith works like this. She, she is um, giving people wet dreams, arousing them and using semen to father her legion of evil um, demon children. And... Uh, apparently even if a child laughed in her sleep it was said that um, she was playing with Lilith so Mm. there's this weird um, weird sense of a personified dream and in Egypt as well there's definitely descriptions that sound a lot like sleep paralysis or demonic influence and if you think about if people believe that bad dreams are some outside force coming upon them then they're much more terrifying than thinking that it's something that's generated from within and they can have then in a way they can have their own volition and their own agency. So I think perhaps they're operating more like a tulpa um, in that sense, because with sleep paralysis and with negative dreams, actually, because I haven't had the negative sleep paralysis experience, but I have had a negative entity in a dream that the more I hate it and the more terrified I am of it, the more power it gets. And I realize that I'm feeding it my own psychic energy. So the only way to change that is to love and adore it and try to somehow alchemize my own inner feelings. And that is a mirrored by the appearance of this thing that then transforms in front of me. So I think that's very often the case with sleep paralysis, that people get scared of not being able to move. And that tiny moment of fear creates something to be afraid of. And it reminds me very much as well of, as the, of the hypnagogic experience. Um, you know, I often describe the hypnagogic experience as like when you're falling asleep, it's like your Alice falling down the rabbit hole. And what you find if you can retain a kind of conscious awareness of that process is that any thought feeling thing that you think instantly manifests instantly becomes a form and 
I think this is what's happening in sleep paralysis because you're essentially dreaming and awake at the same time. So you're um, manifesting form and then depending on how you feel about that form, it can become oppressive or it can become positive. And actually sleep, if you do experience sleep paralysis, it can be a really useful way to access lucid dreaming because it's so on the, on the sort of edge of lucid dreaming. And I've got a friend who actually pretends to be um, experiencing sleep paralysis to access lucidity. That makes sense. makes perfect sense. It reminds me of Jung in the shadow, right? The, it's actually yourself in the dream that, that's being projected out. Yeah, it can yeah. be really scary to confront those terrifying demons. It can be absolutely horrifying. And, and a lot of people do um, begin lucid dreaming through having nightmares, especially children. They learn to either not be scared of this scary creature or um, just wake up. So a lot of people, when they realize that in a nightmare, they choose to wake up. But if you choose to stay in the dream and change it, because I, I often think fighting doesn't really work. You just frequently exhaust yourself and um, and you tend to give this scary thing more power. It's a really hard thing. It's a really hard process. And I remember trying to sort of summon it up in lucid dreams as a kid, tr changing my fear feeling into a feeling of completely not being afraid was a really conscious decision and you can only really do it if you're lucid in that state so it can be difficult i've done that um one time uh, more than one time uh, i've had a dream i didn't like what was going on in it and i woke up and i said you know what i want to finish this dream differently and i deliberately went back to sleep and got myself back into it and guided the dream so that it was better outcome yeah, that's definitely what I suggest to people that do suffer from nightmares is there's nothing worse for me. I don't often have nightmares. Um, occasionally I have anxiety dreams. Um, and if I wake up from an anxiety dream, I'm like, just go back to sleep. I can do that. So <laughs> just go back to sleep until um, I have a good dream. And quite often you'll have a good dream immediately after that because you've kind of um, released that anxiety or that trauma through that dream. Yeah. So um, if you've got the time and also if you do suffer from um, nightmares at night and you, you've got um, you've got any opportunities to have afternoon naps, afternoon naps can be really, really useful for um, creating more positive dream type experiences. Yeah, I know Jung said always go into the dream thinking everybody you meet is a part of you that needs to be addressed. So, uh, and I also, uh, something I mention often about the hypnagogic state, Sarah, is I think it was either Pablo Picasso or Jean Cocteau who he felt that the hypnagogue state is where he got inspiration, answers, prophecies. So he would sleep with a bell or plates on his lap. So he'd fall asleep, and if he doze off, it would fall and make the sound. He'd wake up, and that idea, that's where it was all out, because he knew when he would fall asleep and wake up, he would probably lose half of it. So, uh, Yeah, I think Edison did that as well, and I think that's uh -huh. stay and dreaming as well. If you're conscious in dreams, because dreams work by association, they can help you make novel associations that you wouldn't ordinarily make, and so you can have these aha eureka moments. <laughs> but similarly, you have these like ridiculous epiphanies as well, and I think in that way it parallels the psychedelic state as well. I was talking yesterday about how when I was a kid, I was very philosophical. I really wanted to know the secret of the universe. I still thought there was a secret to the universe. I don't really think like that anymore. And I remember um, in one dream, I was walking. I had this very familiar dream terrain. And I was walking past a um, massive 
school building and on the side was like an algebra puzzle written out and I'm terrible at maths but I think <laughs> to my child my childish brain at the time I thought the secret of the universe could be an algebra puzzle and so I looked at it and my head exploded <laughs> and I had this amazing epiphany that I knew the secret of the universe and then I woke up and I tried to remember what the puzzle was and I tried to write it down and it was just me trying to find visual um cues i suppose or visual prompts to explain this ecstatic feeling i was having which was really like unexplainable so my brain was like trying to find this kind of reasonable reason for why i should feel so great but also i think you have the same thing with um i, I talk about this a lot when you have dream jokes you have like a joke in the dream that is absolutely hilarious and you're crying <laughs> with laughter and then you wake up and you retell that joke to yourself and you're like that wasn't funny at all but you like you've had this ecstasy and your brain is trying to th I think your brain is perhaps trying to um bring back any memories of previous experiences of that ecstatic feeling and represent some sort of algorithmic um a visual match or like story match to that particular feeling so I mean dreams I just find dreams super fascinating and interesting and when you can become lucid in dreams and just look around your dream realm and realize it's you the whole universe is you it's this incredible expansive bliss blissful feeling oh i agree like you uh i can't when i go to the next stage of course i want to see my loved ones but i want to listen to the aretha franklin song it's just weird but it's like an obsession because i know it was more beautiful than anything I've ever heard. And Aretha Franklin, of uh -oh. course, is one of the greatest vocalists. Greek, the Greek sirens got into your dream. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they do it. Uh, yeah, yeah, they tap into it. And what about uh, prophecy, uh, Sarah? How do you explain that? Is this a part of us that can see beyond time and space, the daemon, or, or what do you think it is, or the gods? Or It's all the same, again, going back to the ancients who just would nod and said, yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I think that my essentially my philosophy is that the entire cosmos is a interconnected fabric rather than lots of separate elements. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in certain states, we have access to the totality of information in the cosmos at any given moment. So that to me sort of neatly explains everything, every kind of anomalous phenomenon that could possibly occur because we have this potential. Sometimes I have dreams where, and I speak to other people and they say that they have the same experience where I feel like the amount of information or memory that I'm experiencing is overwhelming. It's like a tsunami of information that my brain is incapable of making sense of in that moment. So I experience it as a feeling, like a rush. Um, and it's interesting in this instance to look back to ancient dream interpretation and realize that that entire preoccupation was dreaming to predict the future. Like dreams aren't mm. about the personality. They aren't so much about the self. They're about, they're about personal fortune and, um, you know, good or bad luck, but they are essentially preoccupied with the future. And that's interesting in and of itself, because that, massively indicates the way that ancient people viewed reality that it was um it was much more this continuum of consciousness knowledge and information than a linear narrative structure of individual lives so so to me that does kind of explain everything and um ancient dream interpretation is really interesting as well because especially in the ancient near east and in ancient egypt 
nearly all dream interpretation is based upon wordplay, puns and homophones. So language helps to decode visual information in dreams. And this is why dream journaling can be so fantastic, actually, because when you write down a dream, um, you know, I had a I did a podcast yesterday, actually, and someone was saying to me about how why do some people not remember their dreams at all when they wake up? And I think a lot of it has to do with your capacity for a visual imagination. If you don't have a visual imagination, when you're waking up from those last lingering bits of dream um, and you try to remember it, if you can't visually con- reconjure it up, it's harder to record. So um, practicing a vis- like your visual imagination is really useful. And if it's a bit weak, as I think for a lot of people it is these days, I mean, lots of people contact me saying they have aphantasia or they've kind of no visual imagination. Um, I think most people can create, can develop it, but it might help to uh, practice remembering things from times where your visual imagination was much more vivid. So say childhood things, re- like imagining your childhood home or favorite family holidays or just amazing things that you've seen or been or people that you love. If you, if you work with the stuff that you already know and you know is good, then um, that can help you to create more visual um, content in your dreams and to be able to remember it more vividly. Fascinating. Well, I'm certainly going to take that. And that's interesting, Sarah. You, in your book, you talk about these ancient uh, dream incubation temples, Asclepius. Uh, the Egyptians were very much into it. Uh, it was important. I mean, even in the Hebrew Bible, you've got Joseph and then Pontius Pilate, his wife dreaming of Jesus. I mean, it was very important. Are you saying that it wasn't used for any sort of personal therapy? Because like when I read some of the Gnostic texts and their visions, a lot of it was therapeutic. They would actually talk about their emotions, you know, 2000 years ago and how that, you know, that's why Jung was so interested in the Gnostics because they were practicing psychotherapy when it was very rare. So that wasn't done in the ancient times for dream incubation. It it was in the sense that all of this was thought to come from the gods, from the divine. Mm-hmm. And so you could have a healing dream where you, um, you know, a big part of any, um, unlucky event or illness that might occur to a person say in the ancient near east was thought to be because your personal gods had neglected you so you would have to sort of implore your gods to come back and show you favor so you might then dream of them saying okay now we're back on your side and because there was less of a sense of the sort of ego and self-identity good feeling was all about divineness or Mm. um, being in harmony i suppose with the world and with yourself and with the gods and um, there's definitely this sense that the gods give you disharmony and illness and they can also have the power to take it away. So it's much more shamanic perspective on mm. health, wellness and emotions than we have these days. Yeah, the Greeks had Asclepius. Uh, they used to go to special temples or buildings, outbuildings next to the temple. And people go and sleep there and try to contact Asclepius for healing and so forth. And I bet you it was also mental healing things were bothering them in their mind yeah i think that well in terms of the sort of holistic view of a human being it had a spiritual component that is discounted these days in mod- modern medicine so um i mean i think it's fascinating that in the asclepians 
obviously they were successful. They carried on for 2,000 years. There's evidence for about 350 of them, 400 around the ancient Hellenic world. So they clearly were working. I would personally rather go to a holistic health spa than a hospital. So I think for a lot of conditions being psychosomatic um, and a lot of conditions writing themselves anyway, naturally, given enough time and the right kind of conditions, um, when you visited an Asclepian, you'd kind of did all the things that are right for boosting your immune system as well. Cold water bathing, purging, fasting, catharsis through art and expression and talking. Um, and then you incubated for this, you incubated, you went through this enchoimesis process, this sacred sleep, which was often mitigated by opium as well. So mm. if you think you've got um, a group sleeping in a fumigation of opium, there possibly is elements of psychodrama happening as well, because perhaps Templar tendons acting out the roles of Asclepius and his family. And in your opium adult state, you might think these things are, are happening because of the gods. But that's, <laughs> that's um, activating self-healing mechanisms you know we know faith healing can work we know placebo can work so it's like the ultimate expression of um placebo effect if you think that say for example you you're having your sacred sleep and during that sacred sleep you are operated on by the god asclepius or touched or or irradiated with light your body's going to respond to that because especially you know one of the things i quite I find really interesting about this concept of the divine dream in the ancient world is uh, when I've read inscriptions that describe these divine dreams, they sound to me very like they're lucid. And if you think about it, you know, one of the things that often makes people have lucid dreams is having a massive crush when they're really into someone, when they feel very romantic about someone, when they see that person in their dream, they get excited, aroused, they become lucid. And it's a, it's a great experience to encounter this person that you have so much attraction towards. And if you think about ancient people adoring gods, when they saw them in their dream, they would have been um, activated and aware of the fact that they were dreaming because they were seeing this like object of their adoration. So um, because you also have this element we discussed before where you've got certain genes switched on and ordinarily switched off, you've got this extraordinary state of mind-body entanglement during lucidity and if you add into that mix a healing event that feels real to the sleeper if you you know i sort of describe it sometimes like people can have wet dreams because they have an erotic dream they'll orgasm so it makes sense to me that you would have some biophysical response to a profound ecstatic feeling ex uh, yeah. healing experience if you encounter the god asclepius and then around these temples as well because the the snake was seen to be the theriomorphic form of asclepius there were snakes everywhere so i think that all of these kinds of things you know there's neural linguistic programming going on you're getting primed all the time that you're going to have this dream you're in the sacred precinct whereby it's the only place where the god can manifest to these sleepers i mean you're at, there's so much suggestion going on there it's like the perfect incubation intention setting um environment where you know there's statues of asclepius there's images of asclepius everywhere you're told you're going to have a dream where he visits you i mean human beings are in type like so suggestible <laughs> so i think <laughs> it would have worked perfectly and it's interesting too sarah in your book you seem to show that dream as sort of a i guess a form of magic like uh, herbalism uh, portals and all that it was really part of the part of the uh, the goddess, right? The anima. That's where it was. That's where it went. With Asclepius being the exception, I suppose. <laughs> well, I kind of think about the Asclepian tradition, um, and 
one of the things that interests me most about it is the fact that I've read in many of the sleep temples, um, the final ritual involved a fumigation of frankincense and invocation of the goddess Mnemosyne, who is a titaness and the personification of divine remembrance. And to me, she actually is the goddess of lucidity because she's the goddess of sense making, of um, remembering yourself within a dream and then remembering the dream. So she epitomizes everything about the lucid experience and uh, she would be invoked to help participants remember their dreams but I think it's more than that I think it's about remembering themselves in dreams and making sense out of the dream you know and um, she's she's the daughter of uh, Gaia and Uranus so she's the product of the earth and the heavens coming together and it's interesting that her role is this divine remembering because it's not memory in the way we think of it it's much more like remembering your divinity in the dream mm -hmm. state because that's what causes the ecstasy and the bliss so mnemosyne is an endlessly fascinating character to me and it's interesting as well that when the romans came along and absorbed a lot of the greek gods into their pantheon mnemosyne was replaced by manita so she was replaced by the goddess of money and debt which i find mm -hmm. very interesting because that's kind mm -hmm. of what we shifted towards culturally yeah. as well yeah, you say, you write, she is the personification of consciousness. So very important. Sleep, awake. She is, she's what gets results. <laughs> well, I guess to me, consciousness is um, making sense of memories and experiences. You know, this mm -hmm. sense of self is really making sense of our, the, the landscape of our memory over our lifetimes and having this individual sense of personal will and volition so to me mnemosyne is like a really essential archetypal figure to try to understand and in the orphic mysteries she acted as psychopomp she took the initiates upon death into hades warned them not to drink the water of lethe so they would forget everything and to drink right. the water of memory so they would remember their divine origins yeah, another goddess you write about, which is fascinating, I believe it's uh, Gula, the Sumerian goddess. Could you share about that? And of course, she was the goddess of dogs. And uh, you, you got you and Vince were talking about Asclepius. He also had dogs in his temple, mm. too. All right. Well, All dog, right. dogs were useful. I mean, I was looking after my mate's dog the other day, and it did make me think how useful they are for healing. You like just when they're sleeping next to you and you're stroking them, it's such a sort of meditative, relaxing thing. And dog right. lips were used as. Um, uh, healing as well because they do actually contain antimicrobial properties and so they can heal wounds if you get licked by a dog so i think in some temples it's thought that you even paid to get licked by a dog so you'd pay for dog licks um so gula is an ancient sumerian goddess and associated with dogs and she's an astral goddess so she's associated with um uh what was called the she goat constellation in babylonian astronomy and became Lyra in modern astronomy um, and so there's this beautiful idea the Assyriologist Erica Rayner this really captured my imagination coined this term astral irradiation which was um, a technique of healing whereby you'd leave a patient a charm amulet anything herbs even underneath the starlight underneath a particular constellation even at a particular time to absorb the radiance of the gods because the gods themselves were the planets and the stars and therefore 
you know, this is why dreaming ties in with astrology and astronomy, because they're all nighttime oracles. And um, dreaming is this special time where the sky is usually dark. And so we have unparalleled access to the gods that are visible to us. So I think that that is really worth thinking about the the perception of the heavens to ancient people is enormous. And we all know due to light pollution in our current age, we do not have access to the gods in the way that ancient people did. And if you ever spend time in a dark skies region, you can fully appreciate the sort of magnificence and the reason why ancient people considered the stars to be sentient divine beings as well. So this term astral irradiation is you leave uh, a person or an object underneath the stars to absorb the sort of healing, uh, beneficent radiance of the divine beings. And then it's infused with this power. So if you were ill, you would sleep under the stars and you might sleep at a particular time when a certain star was present. Um, and um, the same would would happen with amulets and charms. And it was infusing them with this this heavenly power. So uh, Gula is an astral goddess. She's a very early goddess. And uh, her temples were actually places where physicians would be trained up in the healing arts. And in Mesopotamian healing, you had Asus and Ashipus, and, and these were kind of physician type doctors, herbalists, and then spirit doctors. The Ashipu was a, a spirit doctor. And their role was to identify what you'd done to get ill in the first place, which usually involved offending your personal gods, and then how to win back favor. And then you also had... Um, the Baru, who was like a, um, a diviner who practiced ecstasy spicy, haru spicy. So divining by looking at the internal organs of sacrificed animals, lambs, quite often. So to check that your um, petition had reached the gods, you would perform another ecstasy spicy or haru spicy at a certain time to see you would check on the gods receiving your message. So it's like an early kind of form of email in um, animal entrails. Hopefully, it's not a god that uh, is offended by killing the lambs. <laughs> yeah, goes around. <laughs> and it's interesting too, Sarah. You are learning Egyptian and how to read hieroglyphics, and you you write that the word "dream" in ancient Egyptian means resute. Res yeah, the the sort of phonetic translation is resute. So, resute. I mean. Hieroglyphs are amazing. I kind of think all kids should learn how to write hieroglyphs and not just Egyptian hieroglyphs, but hieroglyphic writing, writing systems across the board, because it's a very interesting way of communicating ideas. Um, and it's not just Egyptian hieroglyphs. There are hieroglyphs from ancient Anatolia, hieroglyphs from ancient Greece. Um, there are uh, systems, obviously the glyph system you have in Mayan and Aztec um, cultures as well. But it's a really like different and interesting way of perceiving your world because we underestimate how much we perceive our world based upon our language, structure and systems. And when you start looking at hieroglyphs, you know, since I've started learning, going to the British Museum, for example, now when I go in, I have this completely different sense of what I'm looking at because I'm, I mean, I'm not fluent by any stretch of the imagination with them at the moment, but I kind of understand the gist of them and I understand the structure and the way that words are formed. And that, you know, in, in um, the ancient Egyptian language, the hieroglyphs are called Meduneja, which translates as God's words or divine words. And uh, we get the word hieroglyph from the Greek, which means sacred carving. So they aren't, they're sort of phonetic, they're phonetic values, they have symbolic spiritual values, but they're like a tool for magic. If you write these things down, you're manifesting their forms in the 
real material world. And so, so for example, with this, an example of the kind of Heka Egyptian magic that words can produce, there are these healing statues. They're my favorite ancient Egyptian artifact, these healing statues called the Horusippus. And so they are representations of um, the child god Horus. Um, and he's usually um, sort of subduing poisonous, vicious animals in the swamp. And this all relates to the mythology about Horus and Isis in the swamp and her protecting him and him being bitten by scorpion and all these kinds of things. So he's treading on these crocodiles, holding these scorpions and other scary creatures. And there are magical formula and spells all around these statues. And at the bottom, there's a basin. And these uh, spells and these letters and words are all carved into this stone. And the idea is that you pour liquid over this stone. The liquid sits in the the sort of architecture of the words of the magic symbols of these letters and by doing that by taking the form and shape of these magical signs absorbs that power of this um healing spell and then the water or whatever fluid it is collects in this basin at the bottom and then the supplicant will drink it or apply it to their skin so that's an amazing you know to me that's like a beautiful um explanation of how words are magical in the ancient world and how the sort of perception of form intention and um words have having magical power is like evident in ancient cultures no it makes perfect sense and in your book you talk about you want your favorite civilization is the minoan civilization why is that well favorite maybe i do i just love greece I've mm. I just love Greece. I think it's the most sort of beautiful, feng shui, harmonious lifestyle imaginable. And it's maintained it as well. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things with Greek Orthodoxy is it absorbed a lot of those pagan Asclepian traditions. And mm. they're still kind of evident in Greek Orthodoxy to this day. You have the, um, on Kefalonia, you have the day of the blessed snakes of the Virgin Mary, where people come to get like touched by snakes and if they mm. do then miracles happen for them although they receive healings um you also have the um tomata which are these little um often tin tokens of body parts that you take into the church to get healings which is very similar to the um ancient greek tradition of iomata where you take votive offerings to the god Asclepius to heal that particular part of your body there's a sort of magical correspondence that happens so it's really maintained. It's like magic. I love the Greek language. Um, uh, I love the sort of culture of Greece to this day. I just think it's a magical, beautiful, you know, the, the emphasis is on good views, delicious food and, um, you know, sort of relaxing, which is my absolute dream. I'd like to just move to a Greek Island and, you know, I was saying yesterday, just sew weird symbols into my clothes and have a good view. I'd be so happy. That sounds like a really good life to me. Yeah, I, I would certainly agree. And uh, as we get towards the end of the interview, uh, your book gives a lot of advice on, uh, again, sleep hygiene, lucid dreaming, advice for all that. And, of course, we've talked about, you've mentioned it, uh, get away from your mobile device, caffeine, uh, cannabis, the usual thing. Any other advice you want to give for people to quickly learn about how they can access their dreams or the dream well, world? Because, because I have a lifetime of lucid dreaming to refer to, um, I have some weird hacks. Uh, one of them is playing Scrabble, um, hmm. which sounds 
weird, but I, I'm not entirely sure why it works. I've kind of questioned this and I think it's something to do with I love Scrabble and my favorite part of Scrabble is getting a seven letter word and there's something that happens there's a feeling that you get when you get your seven letters they're sitting in your trough and you don't know what the seven letter word is yet but you know there is one there and it's this sort of precognition of the word based upon the information that is in front of you so it's a it's a mild form of precognition there's something about accessing that um it's on the tip of my tongue I've just I know it that is very similar to becoming lucid in a dream. So playing Scrabble and also Scrabble, you're using language, you're you're generating these novel words. I used to play Scrabble. I was addicted to Scrabble. I used to play it like a hundred times a day. I run, mm. funnily enough, when I lived in Crete, um, <laughs> I played it a lot. And um, I just got really, really into that feeling of like knowing there's a word there and it taking like a few more seconds to work out what that word was there's something about it just works with lucid dreaming just trust me um any supplement that improves your memory is really good for um lucid dreaming because the dreaming is all about memory and if you think about dreaming being all about memory um that will help you a lot in cultivating the ability to be lucid so one thing that can really help is as you're falling asleep at night imagine yourself in a previous dream like really try to vividly imagine yourself in existing in this previous dream and if you find that hard to conjure up try to imagine yourself as visually as possible in a really enjoyable experience of your life or something you absolutely love just imagine yourself there um uh i'm trying to think what else um, for, having for supplements like lion's mane yeah, lion's other, mane. Other things, okay yeah, lion's mane, um, ginkgo biloba, um, galantamine, you know, because galantamine is um, a a useful tool for treating Alzheimer's. It sort of shows that it's about memory and um, galantamine is shown to be very effective to help people have lucid dreams. Also, the smell of rosemary. Rosemary is also being used mm. in Alzheimer's treatment as well and dementia treatment. So if you put oh, a couple oh. of drops on rosemary oil on your pillowcase, um, I think before you go to sleep, if you write down what you want to dream about, that can be really useful. And it sounds so simple and easy, but obviously not many people do do it, but that can really help. I mean, I always, I've been running this dream mapping course um, over the last few weeks and uh, dream mapping is like a sort of 3D version of dream journaling in a way, but it really does help because it's more, it is more um, sympathetic, I suppose, to the way we experience dreams um is that we do experience them as being part of this world they're not like a narrative story in a book so mm -hmm. if you actually draw maps of places that you go to in dreams that can be a bit more helpful than dream journaling um and then if you spend time actively imagining yourself exploring that dream map that can be really helpful reading novels before you go to bed um i really love novels uh i've always been really into reading before bed and often things from books will get into my dreams. Uh, actively engaging with visual memory is really useful, just strengthening that ability. And actually, Vance, as you mentioned, um, listening to things, um, having an alarm that is set to wake you up with music that you like is much better than having like a beeping alarm. <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and in that way, the song or whatever music you're listening to can kind of gently wake you up and weave its way into the dream. And therefore it might also enable you to, become lucid in that last bit of dream because you're aware of the song playing in it 
Um, yeah, there's so many. I mean, have the book. I've got some sort of sort of more unusual and weird, my own personal hacks of how to um, cultivate lucid dreaming. And one thing is a lot of people have lucid experiences, but they get so excited they wake themselves up out of the lucid dream. <laughs> so one thing that I've really thought about with regard to this is the fact that dreams are always in motion. You're always moving through the dream space. And one of the reasons I think we, we wake up out of the lucid dream experience um, is because we stop and you need to keep some momentum, some motion going with your dream body to keep the the onward going motion of the dream. So one thing I do is I sort of move slowly side to side or I open my eyelids and I look really closely at everything in the dream. So keeping some sort of movement um, going could be useful if you become lucid and then you get too excited and you wake up. Great advice. Very much. I know I'm going to take advance as we end things. Any uh, last question or remark before we wake up from this dream? Um, yeah. How about evolution dreams? I had a dream one time that of a place I was working at and then I left the place years ago, but then I kept on having dreams about this place and people would leave and then that the whole office would move and then the whole, they move in a build into another building. Do you ever hear that? I wonder what that means. Uh, recurring dreams. that you, uh, yeah. yeah. For years. And then also um, if you just, if you um, question where you find yourself in dreams a bit more as well, like there's this concept of the mansion of the soul. There are certain landscapes, certain architecture that we return to again and again. And if you start drawing this down and analyzing it, as if, you know, what does this architectural structure relate to with regard to me? Like very often I still dream of my home when I was a kid. And um, it's sometimes an amalgamation of new places or favorite places. But there are certain aspects of it that I recognize. And it's just because those memories of my childhood home are so deeply um potent you know when we when we go through puberty um neural pathways are pruned back and we have a different sort of less synesthetic perception of our world where we start to focus more in on more specific things whereas when you're a child your brain is like a sponge you just drink in everything and i if i think about my childhood no, um, home now i can remember every single detail of my bathroom and every single every single item of um furniture wallpaper curtain in my bedroom it's like you have those those childhood memories are really really powerful and vivid so they're really useful to kind of get into the dream space because that's so much easier to conjure up than often adult type experiences and i think you know this is a reason why i think children have so many more lucid dreams than adults ordinarily is because they spend so much time in this um imaginary state of play like play consciousness is like an altered state where you're seeing your sort of imaginal world overlaid with your reality um i remember playing a kid when when i was little one of my favorite games was playing eskimos where me and my brothers would pretend that we were in a little canoe and in my head i could see this world perfectly i was building a igloo but i knew i was in my living room but it was very vivid sort of waking dream of actually being in this other space and really viscerally experiencing this other place as well. And children just have this innate ability. So trying to tap into that somehow, like maybe sitting down and playing with um, a toy can be really useful for lucid dreaming, actually, and actually imagining yourself inhabiting the little characters. And one of the other things I, I got my class to do the other day was um, – watching a tv show from when you were a baby or a, a toddler because some those memories are so um 
so redolent and so potent that they help you access that sort of childhood yeah. state of consciousness. Captain Kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> the I prisoner. <laughs> I, it was cool. I met Captain Kangaroo. Yeah, I used to watch him. Well, wonderful. Well, we will have this on the show notes, but for the audio version, where can people find out more about you or your book or where do you want to direct people, Sarah? I've got pretty much everything up on my website and the um, website is themysteries.org. Wonderful. So that's how they can find out about lessons, book, everything there, podcasts. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you heard it too. Well, it's been a, a great interview. Vance, Vance, thanks for uh, being the psychopomp on this dream. Oh, no problem. No, no danger of falling asleep during this interview. No, no. Very dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sarah, thank you very much for coming and discussing initiation into the dream mysteries and uh, good luck with everything. And thanks for your time. And yeah, keep spreading that gnosis. My pleasure. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you, Vance. Thank you. And now we must speak of Zhuang Zhu, who fell asleep one day and dreamed he was a butterfly. For hours he fluttered in the warm winter sun, until he no longer remembered he was Zhuang Zhu. Suddenly he awoke, and he was Zhuang Zhu again. But in that moment he didn't know, was he Zhuang Zhu who had dreamt he was a butterfly? Or a butterfly who was dreaming he was Zhuang Zhu? Welcome everybody. We have the honor of hosting today brian george and we will be talking about his book which i enjoyed masks of origin regression in the service of omnipotence and here is the book of course i will have it as always on the show notes whether you're listening audio or watching it on <laughs> video and it was a again a very good read brian thank you very much for coming on am bite oh great to talk with you um we had a Talk a few months back over the summer, which I really enjoyed. I wasn't sure what to expect. And um, uh, sometimes, you know, if people are very good at projecting a certain persona um, on stage or on the air or whatever, you know, they might be, you know, considerably more arrogant or difficult or temperamental or whatever in person. But, uh, yeah, I was just delighted by your generosity of spirit and your sense of um, almost childlike curiosity. It's, I think, a virtue that um, is to a great extent underestimated. I mean, uh, there are formal versions of it, like the Zen idea of beginner's mind. Um, but I think if you really look at people who remain creative throughout their life or, you know, stay in some reasonable degree of health, at least to the extent that they can keep doing whatever they love to do, um, I think, you know, part of it maybe has to do with just setting up new challenges for yourself as you get older. But I think a big part of it too is just never losing your sense of wonder and curiosity, always beginning at the beginning, never taking anything for granted. Um, it's one thing my mother always commented on when I was very young. Um, I would often, my grandfather, when my parents had got divorced and we moved back to Worcester to the family house, he had set up this gigantic sandbox for me in the backyard. Uh, he was a. He, had, he and my grandmother had gotten married like a month before the depression hit, and they never believed in wasting anything. Uh, and my grandfather used to sweep up all of the sand from the street at the end of the winter and put it in a gigantic bin in the basement. Then, when I was about four or five, he built about a twelve-foot sandbox for me in the backyard, 
And I remember um, just totally losing myself in constructing uh, cities in the sandbox and losing all sense of time. And um, uh, that continued for, you know, quite a while when I was a kid. And my mother would always mention it because I had friends that were easily bored or distracted or whatever. And um, I guess, you know, it was that way in school. I went to kind of horrible schools up until my last two years of high school. But whenever I was left to my own devices, you know, once I got focused on anything, time would almost completely disappear. And that, um, yeah, that's really stayed with me uh, through my career as a writer. It's one of the kind of secrets to my method is just staying with something uh, long enough, going deeper and deeper into whatever I'm doing. Um, often beginning with maybe hours of boredom at the beginning, just staring at a you know blank page in a notebook or you know the uh, word screen on my uh, laptop. But then bit by bit, energies begin to cohere and swirl around, and then usually something will break, and um, you know you can begin to fit things together. Words will begin to flow. You know, vision spaces will begin to open up. Um, but then at a certain point, if I uh, write as I sometimes do for like 16 hours a day, usually by, I don't know, six, six or seventh hour, um, something very strange will happen. Um, an hour will pass and will seem like, I don't know, maybe five minutes. Then, you know, whole weekends will go by. And um, I'm actually trying to like uh, slow time down again because, you know, I'm trying to get a lot done and uh, the hours are just flying past. And, you know, it's um, something that's both fascinating to experience um, just in terms of the sheer amount you can get done creatively and compressed periods of concentration like that. But also there's a sense of almost ecstasy that takes over where you're just not like trapped in your body or your personal mind anymore. And uh, you just become sort of like a focal point for energies that are moving through you. Yeah, I think uh, that would Jung would call that uh, state of individuation. I think that what is this quote? Uh, the things you did as a child and made the hours pass like minutes. If we can mm -hmm. zero in on that, that's where we break through the other side. Yeah, and thank you very much for the kind words. Uh, I think a lot of it, like you said, is time. Our battle against Kronos. I uh, I'm not afraid of death, but I worry that I will leave this meat sack or whatever incarnation without learning all that I've wanted to learn, whether it could be Taoism, uh, fixing a motorcycle. So it's almost <laughs> like it's a race against time. What can I learn? Who can I meet? What is there out there? And like you said, it does offer an altered state of mind. It does bring individuation, learning, reading, uh, writing. It uh, certainly... Uh, it changes thing. And Brian, uh, when you're talking about meeting me, I think uh, you had this quote in your book by Heraclitus that we always must expect the unexpected. So we have to get out of our comfort zone, right? Yeah, the uh, I forget the exact quote, but yeah, we must expect the unexpected because there's no way to search it out and it's difficult to apprehend. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there are certain things that you almost can't do by sheer force of will. You can only put yourself into um, situations or states of mind, states of, you know, creative intersection where, you know, something is more likely than not to happen. You know, the idea that luck favors the well-prepared. Um, you know, I think you can just sit down, let's say, and uh, 
write or speak or you know meditate whatever you want to do so it's not a question of avoiding effort but um the uh, kind of point of transition uh like it was a point of kairos i think like where like horizontal time um opens up you know that, to allow vertical energies to enter and transform whatever the action is i think it was originally conceived of in terms of uh, sports events where somebody just like moves into the zone and the athlete can't do anything wrong and they achieve almost you know superhuman strength or fluidity which is something i think most people are common uh, are, are familiar with at least in terms of watching you know with uh, sports or maybe from you know playing or, sports themselves people who play golf they lose their complete sense of identity it's just ball you know field hole there's no uh, tiger woods it's that very zen like <laughs> I remember uh, hearing a story about somebody who wanted to mess up their competitor in a, a golf golf match, and um, they complimented him on his stroke in a very specific way before the uh, before the game, and uh, just making the person think about what they were doing was enough to throw off the stroke a little bit. <laughs> yeah, or like uh, Augustine once when they asked him what is time, he said, "If you don't ask me the question, I know the answer." That's <laughs> <laughs> also another very Zen master. And on this show, I've often, or not often, or maybe not often enough, when uh, I, you know, love is one of those words that we all throw around. I call it; it's called a skunk word, and it can mean so many different <laughs> things. But we all, we all use it. Songs use it, but nobody has really a definition. As somebody said, you probably maybe not have a definition. It's one of those words you have to experience. But I always say. Love is the destruction of time when there's no separation and Brian and Miguel are one and I'm one with everybody and everything is just uh, whole and individuated. But then I read a quote today by Franz Kafka and he said, love is a cage looking for a bird. And I was very distraught about that saying. Mm. He, I think he's right. But now we're talking about doing as much now i'm going to spend days maybe years thinking about that quote <laughs> <laughs> well i think he's maybe saying that uh we have a space inside of ourselves that wants to be filled up and that we're waiting for you know like the right bird to to come along mm -hmm. uh which is i think a reason why some people are addicted to romance they keep you know maybe waiting for the wrong thing for um you know, maybe for that initial excitement that seems like love, where, you know, everything is sort of magical and you're projecting all of these ideal qualities onto the, uh, uh, you know, the fantasized love object. But then, you know, as you really get to know the person after two months or six months or a couple of years, if you're married or whatever, then, you know, you really have this, you know, kind of growing awareness of every tiny, you know, flaw and, uh, aggravating uh, tendency the the person might have and you know that's actually when um you can really test whether uh, this genuine love there or whether it was just some sort of passing attraction um, rejection as always projecting everything you want and the best about yourself and to another person so yeah i think at that stage there's at least when you're younger like a tendency to blame the other person for not being that ideal love object and people often get into sometimes even you know violent arguments or whatever you know why aren't why aren't you what i imagined you were going to be right. <laughs> yeah yeah you were this you were a nice guy you were a nice guy you were this it's like oh then now we're dealing with memory and polluting that with projection it's uh 
yeah it's the it's the human nature in fact i want to talk about personality and the psyche with you uh because you deal with it in your book masks of origin but uh there's a there's one quote also or one passage that again it was one of those like the the kafka quote that threw me off but you were talking about Nietzsche and his uh, famous aphorism, uh, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. And you very uh, Hermes-like uh, said, well, that's not exactly right because something happened to Nietzsche, whether he went crazy or he got a disease, and it did not make it didn't kill him, but it didn't make him stronger. We can we can be eroded, right? As the, the old saying says, whom the gods like they kill whom the gods hate first they drive mad and then they kill so nietzsche was wrong <laughs> well you know it's i mean the quote is famous for a reason but yeah if you look at nietzsche's own um life story um you know there's the famous incident with the horse where he sees a horse being beaten in the street and he rushes over to try to break it up and throws his arm around the the horse who's lying on the ground now and sobs uncontrollably, and policemen have to come and carry him off, and that's the beginning of uh, whatever whatever type of insanity uh, he fell into. And I think it's a very puzzling thing to figure out. I mean, to me, it maybe sounds like um, later stage syphilis. You know, we can't really know. I mean, it seemed to be such a common disease in the 19th century, which certainly caught up with any number of uh, writers, composers, artists. But it's also true that... Um, People who are psychic explorers in the, the 19th century, Holderlin is another one, really didn't have that much to fall back on. And um, at some point, you know, the, their descent in, into the abyss became much less theoretical than literal. And they uh, were, you know, perhaps overwhelmed by the forces they had, you know, maybe not even inadvertently set in motion, but deliberately set in motion. But because there was no ritual context for the... Uh, integration of those forces um you know their sheer force of will or you know personal intelligence or depth of knowledge wasn't necessarily adequate to um counterbalance the uh the demands that were being being put on them so that that actually is one of the things that the massive origin is about um i had my own kind of early encounter with the abyss when i was about 16 which happened very very quickly, um, there was a transition from one world to another, which happened literally in a matter of like a month or two. I remember actually being not necessarily naive growing up, but um, but for example, I, I was 10 years old before I ceased to believe in Santa Claus. Um, my friends had all like given up any belief in Santa, I think, when they were like seven or eight. But I had much much more of a sense of mystery than most of the people I knew. And I thought, well, if people can believe in you know Jesus and everybody has their own personal relationship with Jesus and Jesus can be everywhere, um, you know, why can't that be true of Santa? You know, that it wasn't an articulate thing, but I intuited that, you know, we exist on a certain a certain level and there may be other levels, you know, closer to some primordial unity where, you know, a being, a yogi, let's say, or Santa, uh, can be both here and elsewhere, you know, can be, let's say, uh, present as a kind of a field 
even a planetary or cosmic field, as well as existing in terms of, you know, a single or a hundred or you know, two billion different projections. You know, there are certainly saints that um, at least have been reported to appear in numerous places at once. Um, so finally, my mother had to uh, have our TV repairman sit me down for a very serious talk because she had just given up. I, I just, you know, refused to believe that, you know, Santa wasn't real. And um, for whatever reason, uh, the TV repairman was a very kind of earthy, sports-oriented figure. And um, he just told me that, you know, if I knew it was good for me, I'd, you know, stop believing such ridiculous things. So that that worked for a couple of years. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I never really lost that... Uh, sense of open-ended possibility of, you know, the kind of immediate reality that we agree upon being much more of a stage set than any kind of a hard and fast enclosure. Another example from a few years earlier, I think I was about eight, no, probably seven. I had a friend, uh, Francis, who later went on to become a meth addict and a, a criminal and spent a number of years in prison. So he was not necessarily the best personal influence on me, but he was about two years older, so I tended to listen to what he said. This came back to me when I was writing um, about a year and a half ago. I was kind of drifting into childhood memories. <laughs> Remembered this kind of ridiculous situation um, that really was characteristic, though, of my kind of psychic permeability when I was a kid. So we were, uh, I don't know if it was coming home from school or, where we were heading, but we, uh, there was this, Worcester is built on hills. It's a very steep city built on, I think, seven hills like Rome. And there are all kinds of back backyards with, you know, steep winding staircases going down through tall bushes and things. So we were a couple of houses over and about halfway down a steep staircase with a platform in the middle going from my street down to a street much lower behind our house. And he told me that, um, I would never be allowed to leave that platform where I was standing. If I did, then ghosts with razors would cut me into pieces and leave me bleeding on the steps. So um, I don't know if he had some like uh, particular ability to exert hypnotic force or whatever, but he was convincing enough that I actually believed him for about two and a half hours until uh, I got hungry enough to uh, go home for supper. <laughs> uh, yes, I remember the. As a kid, yeah, the magic realism. But and now, as we get older, we realize we weren't so wrong as kids. <laughs> so that was, you know, that was uh, childhood. But then, you know, when I turned sixteen, uh, part of it I think was going to a new school. I had gotten kicked out of St. Peter's Parochial School due to a protest over the bombing of Cambodia, which seemed like kind of a bad thing at the time, just because. I wasn't an obedient student, but I was not really used to getting into any kind of serious trouble. And I ended up being expelled because I wouldn't make a public apology to the school or agree to a set of new rules. So I just told my family, you know, I, I think I've had, had enough of this school, you know, maybe time to go to a school on the different, different side of the city. So I finally went to a school in the affluent part of Worcester, which turned out to have actual teachers who love to teach and Students were about as bright as the teachers I had formerly had. And um, so that was 
kind of a wake-up call or a psychic shock or whatever, but kind of reminded me on some soul level of what I was here to do. And um, I had gone from a period of really being just, you know, something resembling a normal kid, you know, being preoccupied with, you know, baseball, um, tree climbing, bike riding, camping, um, trespassing, uh, bridge climbing, uh, mostly outdoor activities. And, um, you know, doing some, some reading and thinking on my own, probably from the age of 13 on. Um, but yeah, starting when I was 16, um, something just like broke, um, opened up or whatever. And I was projected into some sense of incredible depth or ancientness, which it wasn't anything that I necessarily wanted to do, but it was as if just the um, kind of the eggshell of the world broke in some way. And I began to see everything in terms of being um, taking place really on a very tiny stage set. I mean, very literally. I mean, it was almost almost a kind of psychotic break, except that it was a creative one and a spiritual one at the same time. And I remember a particularly vivid memory is looking out of my windows at night. Um, and there are a lot of factories in my neighborhood. So I would look at factories a little way off in the distance. And I, I couldn't help feeling that they were two-dimensional, that they just were made out of sheets of cardboard. And there was nothing behind them, just like a, you know, like a black ocean or um, uh, some sort of a swelling void, you know, that was waiting to uh, swallow us. So it was very literal illustration of Nietzsche's idea. If you stare at the abyss long enough, the abyss stares back. Um, so it was kind of a love-hate relationship. It was, you know, terrifying, but also um, it was a sense of somehow, you know, being, I don't know, in a very grandiose way, marked out by the fates for some special kind of knowledge, which, you know, for that particular period, it's hard to uh, you know, to keep to keep in any sense of proportion. So um, on the one hand, you know, I was going to this new school with really smart kids and was aware of all of the holes in my previous education. On the other hand, I was studying, um, you know, literature, poems, uh, uh, psychology, whatever, taking courses that were way beyond anything I'd experienced. So there was like this split set up between my, you know, kind of painful knowledge of personal limitations, but also a sense of just primal energies, you know, welling up from the depths and this, you know, vast kind of cosmic panorama opening up around my tiny neighborhood in Worcester. And uh, your, your book, Mass of Origin, it is a biography, but it's not a biography. It's a speculation, an artistic, philosophical speculation, and almost, uh, I like to call it a reality prodder, if you would. I think that's the, the Gnostic part of you, because you're questioning reality. You're not exactly trusting reality. You're trying to find that eternity away from temporality, which was the, that was the big war with the Gnostics, to go against temporality. And a lot of it is trying to find out the various Brian Georges. Who at this age can you say who Brian George is, or where are we? <laughs> where are we? Yeah, that's you know a very good question. Right? The and that's a, there's a song that I quote a lot, and 
It used to be big when we were young, but do you remember Super Tramp, the logical song? The great self-knowledge song, but you don't I, hear it very much. People will play Goodbye Stranger a lot. but Right. I don't remember listening to the words of it. Uh, I'm very good at remembering melodies, but I can't always hear rock lyrics. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, At the end, he's screaming who I am and who I am, and he, society keeps trying to tell him you have to go this way, and he's trying to go this way. You know, you know the story, the eternal oh, yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> um. Hmm, that may be an opening for a short piece of some type. Let me see. Perfect. Yeah, I, my wife gave me some paper clips and yellow sticky things. <laughs> so hopefully it will help me too. I just grab whatever's next to me. Sometimes <laughs> I think I put a cat in the middle of a book. Yeah, I never... This is only my fourth podcast, and um, I'm never really sure what direction conversation is going to go or whether there'll be openings for reading anything at all. Um, well, I'll I keep taking you the Gnostic direction, and <laughs> you know you know where to go with that. <laughs> I did one a pod, or YouTube interview with the um, Monterey Friends of C.G. Young last week. Hasn't gone up oh, yet. Wow. Should be going up soon. And I prepared a bunch of like very meaty Young-related uh, excerpts to read, but they were quite the bunch of talkers. And every time I would go to uh, to read something, somebody else would have like a probing question to ask or an insightful comment. And so I ended up reading a few things, but uh, not. Uh, I mean, that was a good thing. I mean, it's a wonderful flow to the conversation. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've just begun to sort of narrow down the book in terms of readable excerpts. Almost everything. All of the actual essays in the book um, are probably way too long to read straight. So I'm trying to find little self-sufficient sections that read almost like uh, artist statements or poems or, you know, brief memories of some type. So actually here, uh, here are two, two short excerpts from a, a piece actually that went up. I think it's actually still up this month in... Uh, Scene for International Magazine of Arts and Culture. It's an essay called The Long Curve of Descent. Uh, so this, both of these relate both to my kind of literary method of kind of probing into the subconscious of the reader and presenting certain challenges which may not at first be apparent, and also just in terms of my own, own role. This was written a few years ago, so I'm 64 in this. I'm actually just turned 67 this year. In 1988, I had a dream in which a green figure took me by the hand. He led me layer by layer through an underground megalithic complex. We came to a door with a corbel arch and then entered a great hall, at whose center was a mass of writhing snakes, lashing this way and that, copulating and tying themselves into knots. Moving closer, it became apparent that the snakes were all made from rubber, thinking, there is nothing to be scared of. I reached down to pick one up and then immediately felt it sink its fangs into my hand. My guide said, we always mix in a few real ones for effect. The pain in my hand was sharp. Even now I can feel the impact of its fangs. Like the rubber snake that bites, I would pierce the reader's psyche. My vision is went to, meant to wound, not heal. Any healing may or may not happen later on. A cosmology is embedded in the crossweave of the text in the toxin of the snake, 
in the body of the reader, a cosmology that even now exists in its first and final form. What heals and what harms are in no way antithetical. Good habits may, in fact, be symptoms. Hidden energies may disturb us. We have infinitely far to travel to reach the space in which we breathe. And then uh, another section from further on in the essay toward the end. Since the end of the Paleolithic era, it is possible that we have been riding a long curve of descent in which all things once transparent have become more and more opaque. We do not remember what our hands are for. Our speech is inert. Our intelligence cannot exit from the top part of the skull, a door whose key has been broken off in its keyhole, an aperture that lacks oil. Once, our story had been written on the leaves of a great tree. The leaves have been torn off. The glyphs on them are illegible, and the tree is now a stump. Pre-programmed from beyond the clockwork of the stars, the decline we have experienced does not appear as such. No. Some trick of perspective causes us to hallucinate an ascent. Archetypes break like toys, left over from a childhood that never did exist. We discard them, we ask. Why is it so difficult for us to see into the cosmos? We speak loudly, we do not hear the response. The cultures we dismembered have been sucked into a cloud. Their outcries circle and then fall like rain. The last civic structures are consumed by a decentralized plutocracy. Who put you in charge, we demand? Do you have any vision at all? Our overseers then announce the launch of the next generation iPhone. The guardians of the homepage tweak our algorithm. May you live in interesting times, goes the Chinese curse. We do, for better or worse, live in interesting times, in which we must configure all traditionally fixed roles. At the age of 64, I'm just beginning to figure out what my public role might be. Love it. Yeah, very powerful stuff. Uh, so in terms of any definition of self, I don't really think in terms of myself as being, let's say, uh, an artistic brand to be polished or promoted. It's almost the exact opposite of the way I think. You know, I've published a reasonable amount online since probably 2007, but my creative process has been probably since I was in my early 20s when I was a part of a, a you know, very challenging circle of writers that hung together for about 10 or 15 years. But in between, say, the mid-80s and uh, not too long ago, my creative process and process of spiritual exploration has been, if not solitary, you know, very well contained. Um, Another question that was asked, or a question that was asked during the interview with the, uh, the young group last week, one of the people had asked me to comment on Young's idea of containment, but um, I hadn't read Young for a while now. I'd gone through all of the, uh, the Bollingen series when I was younger, but um, haven't really read too much of him. I read more about him over the past 10 years, and uh, it was kind of Confusing Young's idea of containment, which is the idea that rather than expressing anger, fear, whatever, we should kind of put our emotions in a box and use them as objects for contemplation. So rather than allowing ourselves to be torn apart by opposites, you know, we should um, kind of create 
some contemplative contemplative space, you know, around the opposition that will allow for you know, possibility of deeper integration. So I sort of remembered that, but I was getting it mixed up with the um, the idea of the alchemical vessel, the uh, Athener, I think it's pronounced, um, in which we would seal all of our energies, contradictions, or whatever, and put them up through a process of uh, various stages of disintegration and uh, uh, re yeah, reintegration, resynthesis, transformation, or whatever. Uh, my creative process has been very much like that. Um, it it struck me from probably the time I really began to focus on spiritual practice as opposed to purely creative effort, probably around 1983, where I realized that I needed to study with um, teachers of meditation, yoga, whatever, that I'd kind of reached the limit of my ability to be my own teacher or to rely just on my own spiritual guides. It had been very productive up to that point, but I had reached kind of a limit of self-knowledge or ability to kind of activate uh, deeper energies, or I, I wanted to be able to really engage with them on a day-to-day basis as opposed to just waiting for things to happen. So um, I realized just that um, I could sort of see where I wanted to go. I could intuit the the whole list that I wanted to reach, um, you know, some sort of alchemical synthesis um, you know, beyond the immediate conflict of opposites. Um, <laughs> but I just didn't have the energy to do it. And so, yeah, I think from, I would say, time I put out my first book for friends, Ex Revenge of the Autogenies is a book I put out in, 84, an edition of 60 copies for friends. But from that point on, I became aware that I just needed uh, vaster amounts of energy than I had immediately available and began uh, trying to access them through yoga meditation. I was able finally to uh, uh, to meet a spiritual teacher who um, uh, offered me the experience of Shaktapad, of yogic initiation, which was a major turning point. But even after that, even with energies in uh, full, sometimes overwhelming flow, I became very much aware of the need to to uh, not squander the energies, to not not speak too casually, to not engage in uh, you know, scattering of attention, let's say, through social media. Um, you know, I think we possess enormous stores of energy that we're barely even aware of. I mean, even to know that they're there, to sense that they're there, is some degree of uh, spiritual achievement, but it really goes against the whole direction of the culture, which has to do with kind of centrifugal scattering of attention, uh, breaking of attention into smaller and smaller units, and the kind of complete domination of the foreground um, with tiny little bits of... um, things that might fascinate us or seem to inform us, but there's, a, I think, a complete confusion between between information, which has almost cataclysmically expanded, and actual knowledge, which has to do maybe with the removal of mm-hmm. all unnecessary objects, all unnecessary objects from the foreground, and kind of a reattunement with, um, uh, with the depths, with uh, things that are almost beyond our capacity for uh, speech. So it's sort of like we can't really see the stars because the sun is formed is a kind of 
fulfilling its role in the daytime, you know, providing us with light and possibility for a certain type of action. But it also blots out uh, just the incredible uh, depth of space from which we come. So anyway, it struck me, you know, probably from the mid-80s on that the key to spiritual transformation would be um, kind of the accumulation of energy or the concentration of energy or reconnection of personal energy with um, primal energy that's always there in the depths, but that, you know, we don't really even remember as being something that exists. Um, So I became almost, it struck me that, uh, you know, like the atom is a perfect example of that. You know, an atom seems to be something incredibly small and self-contained, um, that just sort of knows its place in the universe. But under the right conditions, all of the energy that's been uh, wound within the center of the atom can be released and result in an incredible burst of, you know, light and energy, which in one form is purely destructive. It just blows things apart. And to some extent, you know, that is the effect, let's say, of Kundalini for someone who's unprepared. It just sort of takes apart all of the surface structures of the psyche, it um, kind of opens new pathways in the body in ways that are uh, very purgative. Um, I remember feeling in 1990 for 10 months or a year after Shaktipat of often feeling that I was just on fire. You know, there'd be a sense of energy, like fingers moving inside the body, just pushing through things, opening them up, uh, kind of forcing everything to the surface, but in a way that was... Uh, often quite painful, but because it was something that I was very much delighted was actually happening, that I wasn't as inert as I thought it was. I was entirely willing to embrace that. Um, But I think the idea of containment is really essential to uh, both emotional equilibrium um, and um, capacity to enter into other dimensions um, without being, let's say, deluded or destroyed. Um, I think there's a tendency to assume that energy equals knowledge as well. And this is a kind of a trap that many gurus get um, lured into. Um, Won't offer any names, but there are any number of teachers, whether originally from, you know, Asia or the U S who I think maybe begin by having genuine visionary experiences and they are able to access some greater depth of primal energy, which, you know, exerts a kind of hypnotic field around them and attracts people. And they also kind of get lured into their own um, self-image as, you know, mm-hmm. being able to operate on a godlike level uh, with, you know, incredible powers of intuition or whatever it happens to be. But I think this is actually just sort of um, a test that we're put through as we enter kind of this, let's say the the next level beyond the human, let's say entering into the god realm or however you'd want to define that. But it's also a realm of temptation. Um, There's a reason I think that Buddhists regard the God realm as being a very problematic one. Things, gods have too much power and Mm -hmm. uh, too much apparent access to enlightenment, but in a way that also pulls them downwards. So um, that's sort of a stage to be gotten through. And I think, you know, many... Many teachers really get stuck in that stage because they've gone beyond, let's say, the, the ego in a normal sense. 
and they have a dramatically expanded sense of energetic boundaries, uh, you know, cosmological knowledge, however you'd want to put that. Um, and because people around them tend to confirm that that image or really kind of magnify it all beyond proportion in a way that um, ends up diluting uh, not only the followers, but the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, one stage that um, has to sort of be gotten through. Um, so energy in and of itself, I think, is not entirely enough for you know, return to some say state of primordial knowledge uh, but it's essential and um, it's only recently over over the past few years that i feel like all of my work has really come together i'm just finishing up the last revisions on six books that i was working on this this one that came out is one of those and there were five others and then it's really only over since november that i've been thinking of trying to talk (laughs) (laughs) you're doing a great job (laughs) trying to to break through those boundaries or just you know sort of kind of open the doors or unseal the uh you know the alchemical vessel to uh create some new expansiveness you know some new sense of larger relationship to the world indeed and uh for the audience uh brian definitely talks a lot about alternative traditions there's kabbalah obviously eastern traditions uh i can see gobleki tepe and atlantis in the background like all of us the great archetype of what was and what went wrong and what are we missing so it's all that but of course brian uh, and to uh as simon and garfunkel said keep the customer satisfied on this show uh, what are your some of your views on the Gnostics, or how has the Gnostic or Hermetic spirit affected you? Um, well, the um, I think the first translations, major translations of the Nag Hammadi manuscripts came out in, let's see, was it maybe 78? 78, 79, yeah. Something like that. And then there was another translation, uh, Somewhat of a clearer one, but also removing some of the original words like autogenies. And right. I think in place of archons, they might have used rulers, all of which are accurate. But I actually, I'm fa- I was fascinated by the by the original words, which I kind of kept in my own work for that period. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, they were major revelations for me, kind of like discovering uh, Nietzsche when I was in high school or Rimbaud is uh, Season in Hell or Illuminations. Uh, Pico della Mirandola is another one when I was a senior in high school in terms of kind of the role of humans in the cosmos. So, uh, yeah, just to touch on Pico for a minute, his idea was that because humans don't really have a natural role assigned to them, um, unlike, say, certainly angels or whatever, uh, rather animals have obvious roles within the structure of nature, but even even angels um, have sort of a fixed role to perform within the hierarchy of creation. Humans, because we don't have a fixed role, um, are you know far more susceptible to evil, corruption, delusion. Um, you know, we can get completely lost and distracted by our capacity for for choice, for independent action, which often just removes us completely from the uh, larger structures of creation. But I became aware reading Pico that um, 
it sort of tied in with my earlier intuitions when I was 16, that I had some particular role to perform. And Pico defines humans as being, in a sense, the kind of the true messengers of creation. Angels are a kind of messenger, but they, they exist to transmit information from one level to another. Humans can certainly descend to lower levels, but we also have a capacity to kind of move to some extent freely between the worlds if we can in any way figure out how to do that. So, um, yeah, the discovery of the Nag Hammadi manuscripts uh, really came as a revelation and a confirmation of an existing sense of a split between kind of normal psychological reality, social reality, and something that existed kind of beyond the edge of time and space. So um, because it confirmed my sense of, you know, kind of being a stranger in the world, my sense of alienation, I um, took that opposition kind of at face value for a while, or it, it dramatized my you know, existing sense of tension that there were certainly oppressive forces constraining uh, human intuition. Uh, social reality struck me as, you know, something dominated by you know, political delusion, yeah. power of, you know, um, tendency of wealth to just, you know, further concentrate itself into, you know, tinier and tinier number of people, um, that the forces really who controlled the world did so from behind the scenes. Uh, I didn't really associate them with any political party or any particular kind of occult global elite. I think that's sort of an, maybe an over-literalization of the concept. Uh, I mean, to the extent that the archons do kind of play games with us and, you know, limit our perceptions, they, they wouldn't do it just by saying, oh, well, you know, it's a, uh, Republicans, Democrats, um, George Soros, whatever it happens to be, you know, they're the ones or he's the ones or whatever, whatever that uh, is, uh, you know, actually taking your birthright or, you know, manipulating your perceptions. I, I think it's much subtler than that. It happens really across the board. It really doesn't depend on personal ideology. Um, and we're very much active participants in our own oppression, even by, let's say, participating in social media by kind of defining ourselves in terms of, you know, more and more um, constrictive ideologies, really just talking to people that we agree with, um, defining ourselves in terms of any, any limited identity. Um, however, that's defined in terms of, it doesn't necessarily have to be race or ideology or gender. I mean, it could be virtually anything, any kind of self-definition to me is, really destructively uh, limiting because that's really not who human who or who or what human beings are and there you have it sarah's dreamy gnosis and the first part of our interview with brian more sensational revelations in our second part so if you're a non-sub please join ab prime or patreon for the full red pill suppository and thanks for being here with your many complexes. For all subs, let us to the rest of Brian's thought-provoking, divine spark-igniting interview.